railroaded the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. Ulbricht's life sentence won't deter others, it won't protect society, it won't serve justice, it will just waste another life behind bars. This is a quote from Henry Blodgett, the CEO of Business Insider. Hello and welcome to the Railroaded Podcast. This is part three of the eight-part series and is about the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. My name is Gary Leland. You may know me from my other podcasts such as the Crypto Cousins Podcast, and the 4-Minute Crypto Show. You can take a look at all my crypto podcasts, websites, and shows at CryptoPodcaster.com. Railroaded is a podcast series revealing behind-the-scenes information you've never heard before. This is a peek into the inner workings and conflicts in the Silk Road story, and you will meet people involved. I didn't produce the railroaded content that you are about to hear. I'm just distributing it as a podcast to help it reach a larger audience. I hope that the more people that know about Ross's situation, the better his chances are of being freed. The information in this podcast is based on the public record and should not be attributed to myself, Ross Ulbrich, Lynn Ulbrich, or anyone connected with freeross.org. I am not responsible for and do not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in this series. Railroaded was created by the Free Ross team and is narrated by Adrian Besson. On today's episode, you'll hear Chapter 9, Closing In, Chapter 10, New York Takes Over, Chapter 11, The Arrest, Chapter 12, The Leading Evidence. Now, it's time for the show. Railroaded, the targeting and caging of Ross Ulbricht. Narrated by Adrian Bassan. The following is based on public information sources, including court filings, transcripts, trial exhibits, affidavits, warrant applications, subpoenas, judicial rulings, investigation reports, press releases, sworn testimony, and direct evidence. Some gaps remain due to government protective orders, redactions, sealed records, missing records the court cannot account for, dropped investigations, tampered evidence, communications and other data that remain encrypted, and the fact many of the parties involved have not testified. Even so, every effort has been made to accurately present the available evidence surrounding the creation, investigation, and shutdown of Silk Road, and the prosecution of Ross Ulbricht. Chapter 9. Closing In William Binney, former high-level NSA official turned whistleblower, said, The government can use an email address or phone number without a warrant to get an IP address to go into the database and scarf up everything about the user. Just ten days before his arrest, Secret Service and FBI agents, and Turner, the New York prosecutor, used a combination of technologies to intercept and collect Ross's internet traffic information. These technologies fall under two categories, pen registers and trap-and-trace devices, which collect outgoing and incoming data respectively. Together, they are known as a pen trap. Turner first collected, without a warrant, all outgoing data from Ross's email address in search of the internet protocol, 
IP addresses being used to access the account. An IP address is a unique number used on the Internet that allows data to be routed between connected devices. Turner discovered one particular IP address being serviced by Comcast. He subpoenaed Comcast to reveal the home address of the subscriber, which turned out to be a row house in South San Francisco, where Ross was renting a room. Having physically located Ross with nothing more than his email address, Turner then remotely attached a pen trap to the wireless router in Ross's living room. This pen trap collected all internet traffic traveling through Ross's home router. In that traffic, he discovered the MAC address of Ross's laptop and attached a pen trap to it, too. This gave him the ability to geolocate Ross and collect all his internet traffic information regardless of where he went. Turner never obtained a warrant for any of these searches and seizures. Alfred's story was not nearly enough to establish probable cause, the standard necessary for securing one. Instead, Turner relied on the third-party doctrine, an outdated legal theory established in 1979 that says that individuals relinquish their privacy rights to the phone numbers they dial because they have voluntarily given them to the telephone company. According to Turner, government agents can secretly rummage through everyone's internet traffic information without restraint, just as he did to Ross, because it is sent through an internet service provider or third party. Something as socially, politically, and personally important as website browsing history requires updated consideration of privacy rights by this court before the government is given license to search it without probable cause, the National Lawyers Guild wrote to the Supreme Court, challenging this violation in Ross's case. The Cato Institute and Reason Foundation argued that the government's warrantless collection of the IP addresses a citizen visits is analogous to a government agent peering through the window to monitor which books a person pulls from their shelf. This power effectively gives the government a blank check to conduct a dragnet search of Internet activity. With Ross's Internet data, Turner was able to gather enough circumstantial evidence to suggest that Ross was logging on and off at times similar to when DPR was logging on and off. This was enough to secure an arrest warrant. Chapter 10. New York Takes Over Joshua Dreytel, criminal defense attorney, said, The government did not produce a single witness to testify firsthand that Ulbricht authored any of the communications attributed to DPR. It was all digital, created and transmitted on an anonymous, untraceable internet network. Duryagin, still the most senior and experienced Silk Road investigator, was not convinced that Ross was DPR. Despite Alford's story, he continued to believe Carpellis was behind Silk Road. After two years and thousands of hours of investigation, time was running out to indict him before the site was taken down and Ross given the blame. Duryagin submitted an affidavit attached to a search warrant for Carpellis's email accounts so he could gather the evidence he needed to convict him. He swore under oath. I believe that Carpellis has been involved in establishing and operating the Silk Road website. He has participated in a conspiracy to distribute narcotics in violation of United States Code. Further, 
By operating Mt. Gox, while knowing that a large volume of its business derives from narcotics trafficking activity conducted through Silk Road, Carpellus has violated U.S. money laundering laws. I believe the email accounts will contain communications between Carpellus and the co-conspirators involved with him in committing the subject offenses. Turner would go on to seal Der Yegen's warrant against public scrutiny, stating that, if made public, it would alert Carpellus to law enforcement interest, and that notification of the existence of this order will seriously jeopardize the investigation. Ultimately, none of Der Yegen's efforts mattered. By the end of September 2013, with Ross's arrest imminent, he realized that if he'd have anything to show for his years of work, he had to cooperate with the prosecution led by Pretender Barrara, U.S. Attorney of the Southern District of New York, who was recommended for his powerful job by Schumer and was his chief counsel for nearly five years. As Der Yegen told his supervisor at Homeland Security, Philip Osborne, I think there's room to avoid the drama by instead of dwelling on the past, talking about how to make HSI in general walk away from this without looking like complete fools. Baltimore can easily erase a lot of the damage they've done by cooperating with Barrara. They can have sloppy seconds on Ross for their murder for hire. They can also have some info on other Bitcoin companies that Carpellis might name as shady after we get done with him. That's the best that can be given and they should consider themselves lucky for getting anything close to that. Or we can just stall, and Baltimore gets nothing, and we contributed to Carpellis and Barr getting away. We'll get no HSI banner on the site, and we'll probably get no cooperation from Barrara with any information related to Carpellis. If Ross names Carpellis in the interview, and we didn't help them get Carpellis and Barr when we had the chance, Barrara will leave us out of it and tie him into their conspiracy. We will then be left dealing with Baltimore's tears. I think it's important we help them have a come-to-Jesus moment, otherwise our agency loses as a whole. It's a simple sell if they know the alternative is they will be left with absolutely nothing. No matter how much they whine and complain to HSIHQ, it won't stop Barrara prosecuting all of them without any of us. Der Yegen's investigation of Carpellis had finally ground to a halt he would never get to examine any of Carpellis's electronic devices or servers or any of his other email accounts. Chapter 11. The Arrest Paul Rosenberg, author, engineer, and consultant to NASA and the U.S. military, said, The prosecution's forensic evidence was below amateur level. The tools used were bad choices, and when the metadata are exactly the same for every file, it's inescapably clear that they've been altered. To then submit them as evidence is laughable, or would be, if so much wasn't at stake. By this time, DPR had convinced Ross to get involved with Silk Road again and given him access to some of the DPR accounts, along with many of the files, software, and records being used to run it. Everything Barrara and Turner needed to make a case against Ross was on his laptop, including a Bitcoin wallet with over 144,000 Bitcoins. On October 1, 2013, the day of his arrest, Ross was in his local library downloading the Colbert Report. Plainclothes agents were watching him 
and Duryagin was across the street in a cafe, logged on as Cirrus. Duryagin initiated a chat to DPR's account, which popped up on Ross's screen now that he had access to it. Duryagin needed Ross to log on to DPR's Silk Road account, so the arrest team could claim that he was DPR at the time of his arrest. To do this, he messaged that he was having difficulty with the admin tool he used to remove inappropriate flagged listings on Silk Road. In response, Ross logged in and waited for the page to load as it bounced through the Tor network. Having little knowledge of the inner workings of DPR's enterprise, Ross messaged Cirrus, You did Bitcoin exchange before you started working for me, right? Something the real DPR would have known, having chatted and worked with Cirrus for many months. Once Ross logged in, undercover agents immediately created a diversion while others tore Ross's laptop from him and handcuffed him. At the arrest scene was FBI agent Thomas Kiernan. He was the first to take possession of the laptop and immediately started punching commands into the computer. He plugged his USB drive in and began copying files without producing digital fingerprints, which are unique snippets of data that would have ensured the copies matched the originals. By doing so, he overwrote some of the metadata for those files unnecessarily. Kiernan triaged the laptop in the library for one or three hours, depending on when he was asked. Then he transported it to Ross's house, about eight blocks away. All that time, Kiernan was in sole possession of the laptop with nothing more than a few photos from his phone to document what he did with it. At Ross's house, Agents found two USB drives with Silk Road files on them and a crumpled piece of paper with notes about Silk Road's vendor review system. At this point, Kiernan turned the laptop over to Christopher Beeson of RCFL, a private contractor in San Francisco. Beeson also overwrote metadata by creating TAR archives, similar to zip files, of commonly used directories on the laptop. He later admitted he was not familiar with the Guidelines for Evidence Collection and Archiving, which clearly states not to run programs like TAR that modify metadata. During the TAR process, Beeson was stopped by a failure he was never able to determine the cause of, nor could he confirm he had properly copied the files. By this time, it was almost 8 p.m. Beeson stopped what he was doing and attempted to make a copy of the laptop's hard drive using DD, a powerful tool colloquially referred to as Disk Destroyer because, if misused, it can cause irreparable harm to the data being manipulated. He ran DD several times while trying to generate a digital fingerprint, but it kept failing. Eventually, Beeson just skipped the fingerprinting altogether and made a copy that didn't match the original. Duryagin reviewed this copy all that night and into the next morning and continued to find evidence of Carpellis's involvement and associations to Silk Road. Carpellis is purging everything after Ross's arrest, he wrote to Alford and Turner. I know he was initially involved. Duryagin continued to submit reports to them on Carpellis's finances and communications, but to no avail. In fact, the government continued working with Carpellis after Ross's arrest, as Duryagin learned that even more information was passed from Carpellis to Baltimore. On October 3rd, two days after the laptop was initially seized, 
Beeson turned his attention to the data in the laptop's RAM. What happened to the computer over those two days remains unknown. But again, there were problems. First, Kiernan and Beeson had overwritten or modified the data with all they had done up to that point. Also, Beeson wasn't quite sure how to do the RAM capture and had to ask for assistance and look up documentation. He tried anyway and crashed the computer, losing unknown information and locking the laptop behind encryption. How true the copy Beeson extracted was to the original Kiernan seized is unknowable. Nor can it be known what exactly Kiernan did with the laptop before handing it over to Beeson, or what data was lost when Beeson crashed the computer. It is indisputable, however, that the laptop was not handled professionally. Both agents ignored order of volatility guidelines, overwrote data unnecessarily, and used obsolete and unreliable methods. Files used in the government's case against Ross were modified as much as six hours after his arrest. Not one photo taken by Kiernan or Beeson to document their work showed the correct time. Yet, all this evidence was admissible at trial. Beeson eventually sent Kiernan, who was now in New York, the copy he had made of the laptop's hard drive and the laptop itself, which Kiernan called a useless brick. Kiernan made another copy of Beeson's copy, and Barrara used this as the basis for his case against Ross. All evidence used against Ross from the laptop was a screenshot of a copy of a copy that never matched the original. Two years after he called for the shutdown of Silk Road, Schumer finally got what he wanted. The site was taken down on October 1, 2013, and Barrara ensured that Ross would be prosecuted in New York instead of California, where he lived and was arrested. Ross spent the next six weeks in solitary confinement, first in San Francisco and then in New York, while the government combed through the data Kiernan and Beeson had collected. Chapter 12. Deleting Evidence Lynn Ulbricht, Ross Ulbricht's mother, said, If this backup of the forum database had not been found... If logins made by DPR after Ross's arrest were not discovered, no one would be the wiser. This begs the question, how much more is there? Sometime after his arrest, and possibly weeks prior, one or more of the few people with access to the evidence in Ross's case would come very close to removing any trace of the conversation between Not Wonderful and DPR. That conversation made clear that someone from the Baltimore office was selling DPR information about the government's investigation. This could have been whoever was behind the Not Wonderful account, trying to protect themselves, or anyone with high-level access and a vested interest in seeing Ross convicted. The revelation that DPR was being helped by law enforcement could potentially unravel the entire case. The conversation was originally in evidence in several locations. One was the live version on the Silk Road forum, while three others were in backups of the live version that Tarbell made copies of. However, the dialogue could not be found anywhere in any of these four locations. All traces of it had been deleted. Miraculously, a fifth copy of the conversation was overlooked by whomever removed the others, 
It was buried in the four terabytes of evidence dumped on Ross and his legal team. This copy appeared to be created manually by a Silk Road user with administrative privileges and saved in his home folder on the Silk Road forum server. Whoever tried to cover Not Wonderful's tracks didn't delete this obscure copy and failed to eliminate all evidence of those communications. However, even this copy was incomplete because it didn't contain any of the communications between Not Wonderful and DPR after it was created in mid-August 2013, even though payments continued until Silk Road was shut down in early October. It will never be known what information was sold to DPR in those crucial six weeks leading up to Ross's arrest. DPR made a critical mistake around this time. While Ross was still in solitary confinement, locked in a monitored cell with no access to the outside world, let alone the Internet, DPR continued to log into his account on the Silk Road forum, which was still running until late November after the takedown of Silk Road itself. This is irrefutable evidence that Ross was not the only person with access to DPR's accounts. For a written version of this episode, plus citations and footnotes, go to freeross.org slash railroaded. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to help Ross, please consider signing and sharing Ross's clemency petition at freeross.org slash petition. Over 176,000 people have signed it so far. Hey, that's up 3,000 since last week's show. Oh my gosh, that's a big move since last week. For additional information, visit freeross.org. You can also follow Ross on Twitter at RealRossU. And the U is just the letter U. Everyone, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening so you don't miss a single episode. I'd love it if you could give this podcast a five-star rating and a great review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. That really does help way more than you know. And please share this podcast with your friends on social media and let's get the word out there. This episode is sponsored by BitBlock Boom Bit This episode is sponsored by the BitBlock Boom Bitcoin Conference. Take a look at this great conference coming to Dallas, Texas at bitblockboom.com. I hope I get to meet you in Dallas. Until the next episode, this is Gary Leland from cryptopodcaster.com saying thank you for taking the time to listen. Thank you.